Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and in this episode, our tour will hit the road to revolution. We'll talk battles and Washington and smallpox inoculations during freezing winter. It's all good stuff, so let's get started. At the start of the revolution, the British had the world's best equipped and most disciplined army, as well as a great navy. Even so, they're going to greatly underestimate the American forces, who have had considerable experience in the colonial wars of the 18th century. They also misperceive the sources of the conflict. They think the rebellion was made up of only a small group of disgruntled conspirators. Because of this, they concentrate at first on defeating that patriot opposition. They thought it would be really easy to reassert political control as soon as they achieved a military victory. One problem, however, was the geography. There was no one single area that would help them to win the war if they overcame it. The Patriots had an advantage or two. They were fighting on their own ground, which was spread out over about 1,500 miles of coastline and extended at least 100 miles into the interior of the continent. So when the British succeeded in defeating the Patriots in one area, other resistance would spring up elsewhere. One key factor in the outcome of the war is the popular support for the American cause. Also, they They don't technically have to defeat the British, they just have to wait it out until demoralization, weariness, and dissent takes their toll on the enemy. The British are trying to suppress a rebellion, so they have to do a lot. They have to not only wipe out the enemy force, but they also have to then occupy the whole country and pacify the entire country. They were never able to wipe out Patriot resistance completely. Though the British will occupy most of the port cities throughout the war, the countryside is going to remain under Patriot control. All of the British supplies also had to be gotten from overseas, including grain for their horses, so they had to wait for things like that. And pro-American sentiment is very strong in England itself. Still, it doesn't really look as though the Americans have much of a chance at first, considering they've just challenged Europe's premier power and one of its finest armies. And at this time, the Patriots don't even have a majority of Americans behind them. Now, the British will send about 35,000 troops to join the Redcoats that were already in America. Additionally, they're going to contract in 1776 to hire what would eventually number about 30,000 mercenaries from several petty German princes who will support themselves by training and renting out crack soldiers. They called them Hessians because a lot of them were from the Principality of Hesse, H-E-S-S-E. So the Germans that come over to fight for the British are called the Hessians. But it's really interesting because by hiring them, that will internationalize what would have been just a civil conflict. Because if Britain's trying to rein in their colonies, it's kind of like a civil war. But once they hire the Hessian soldiers to fight with them, it internationalizes it. They also recruited loyalists, which were Americans who were loyal to the crown. They recruited Native Americans and also African Americans. Never as many as they hoped to get but they did have a lot of those people fighting on the side of the British. During much of the war, the British will have about 50,000 troops ready for battle at any given moment. Against this massive force, the Patriots could only ever muster about 25,000 at the most to be engaged at a time. The majority of those were part of the Continental Army under Washington, and the others were serving in militia companies. Now, a word about militias. Militia companies were very important to the defense of their own areas. They were protecting their homes and their reputations, so if they're fighting in their area, then they usually did pretty well. And so many people thought that it would be the militias that would win the 
war. And most men would rather serve with their neighbors in local companies rather than, you know, subject themselves to the discipline of the regular service. Enlistment terms were generally shorter in the militias, and they were often geared to the demands of agriculture. At harvest time, when winter was coming on, things like that, whole armies would evaporate. Often, they got to work with officers of their own choosing, and they knew them. Still, when it came down to real battle, militia companies will have an appalling rate of desertion. Uh, George Washington wrote, to place any dependence on them is assuredly resting on a broken staff. So in reality, the final victory will come from the steady struggle of the Continental Army. Washington's army didn't really, at least initially, engage in guerrilla warfare. He wanted to be able to directly engage the British, just like they would directly engage him. He spent a lot of time arguing with Congress that they could only win with a full commitment to a national army. But at this time, people are really afraid of having a standing army because they were afraid that the army would then take over. And so it was really difficult for him. Congress will initially refuse to invoke a draft or mandate any army enlistments for more than one year. And that was difficult because once they're done with training and they, they, they get used to it and they get you know good at soldiering, then their enlistment's up. <laughs> and they're not necessarily going to re-up their enlistment. Thomas Paine, the guy that wrote Common Sense, will come to our rescue yet again. He composed another pamphlet called The American Crisis. And it was very stirring. It bolstered morale of the patriots. You might remember remember a familiar part or you've heard the words, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So you might remember kind of the beginning of that. Eventually, Congress sees the failures of the militias in the early battles of the war, and that will lead to enlarging the state quotas for the army. So now each state was required to send a certain number of troops to come and join the Continental Army. They also extended the terms of service to three years or the duration of the war. Now, to encourage enlistment, Congress will start offering bounties, regular wages, and promises of free land after the war. So by spring of 1777, the regular army, the Continental Army, had grown to about 9,000 men, although this would vary. At some points, they would have over 18,000. Some points, they would be down to like 5,000. But the Continental Army will impress foreign observers, people who came and visited and saw them, impress them with their commitment to the cause of independence and their willingness to endure setbacks and sometimes pretty terrible hardships. Now, our Navy, on the other hand, was less than impressive. Washington actually personally paid for the very first American warship. It was called the Hannah, and it was a schooner with four guns. There were merchant ships that were better armed than our first American warship. Now, eventually, Continental Congress will appropriate funds to build 13 frigates, but they only ever finished 11 of them, and they weren't so great. One was completely destroyed in battle, seven were captured, two were ruined on purpose to keep them out of British hands, and one was accidentally set on fire by its own crew. So, moving on from the Navy, (laughs) France and Spain will also help us out. They're going to sustain America with a lot of loans during those first two years of fighting. Both France and Spain were longtime enemies of Britain, and they were hoping to win back territory that they had lost in the Seven Years' War by helping America. The Continental Congress will send a delegation headed by Benjamin Franklin to Paris to negotiate for recognition of American independence and a Franco-American alliance against the British, in addition to the loans from France that they were 
were already receiving. While the French did want to undermine Britain, they're still hesitant to support a Republican revolution against a monarchy, mainly because they're a monarchy. So they don't want to give their people ideas, which is exactly what happens in the end. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the fighting. General William Howe will succeed General Gage as the British commander in Boston. Now, Howe might have been able to win against the Patriots that summer right after Bunker Hill, but he chose not to fight. For one thing, the Redcoats were outnumbered. They were occupying a very anti-British city. He actually wanted to evacuate Boston and establish his headquarters in New York, and he asked to do that. He did receive permission, but not in time to do it before winter set in. So he ends up stuck in Boston for the winter while Washington and his men stayed across the river in Cambridge. Now, Washington, when he got to Cambridge to take control, found a very disorganized, undisciplined mob of people who didn't know what they were doing, and he had to command them and make them into an army and then use that army to expel the British and secure independence. It's a pretty tall order, but he starts to work immediately. Now, eventually, the British will decide that Boston isn't worth fighting for, so they will take to their ships, and Washington and his men will take to the road. They'll meet again in New York, and it would not go well for the Americans. In New York, Washington's troops were outnumbered two to one. It was a possibility that if he just burned the city and left it before the British could take it, that would kind of hurt the British, but he didn't want to do that. He knew that if he surrendered the most important city in America to the British, he would lose something that was a lot more important to the revolution, and that was the hearts and the minds of the many uncommitted Americans, and he couldn't do that. Washington will grow as a military commander, but he's going to have a lot of moments at the start of the war that are not so great. The Battle of Long Island, he'll leave the end of his line open and the British are able to run around it and nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington barely escaped that one and the British will chase them. They chase them to Kipps Bay and at Kipps Bay they will turn and fight for a little while until his men decided they don't want to do this anymore and they ran away and that shocked him. He was just outraged that his men would leave, just leave the battlefield and he's like, you have to stay and fight. What are you doing? And he refused to leave the battlefield and his aides actually had to finally come in and pull him off. So he's really upset at losing New York. He and his troops and the British will have a skirmish at Harlem Heights. There's a defeat at White Plains. You have a really bad fight at Fort Washington, a disaster for the Americans, and another one at Fort Lee. The city is in flames. Somebody set the city on fire. And by November, his army is almost evaporated. What was left of his army is being chased across the New Jersey Plains by the British. So at this point, morale is incredibly low. Entire militia companies are deserting or they're announcing the end of their enlistment terms and they're leaving for home. By December of 1776, the Continental Cause is in serious jeopardy. Many colonists were taking up the offer of pardon by the British and switching sides. The British had announced, if you join our side, we'll pardon you when all this is over and you don't get in trouble. Though some people were doing that. His dwindling troops are being pushed closer and closer to Philadelphia. Washington had to write a note to the delegates that were there in Philadelphia and they were forced to move. They promptly moved to Baltimore. So essentially the revolution is unraveling and he's fighting a political battle at home and abroad. He needed to last long enough for the British people to tire of the war and he had to endure. In fact, the best strategy for Washington's troops ends up being to wear the enemy down over a long period of time. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to directly engage, but it's what he had to do because he didn't have as many men as the British. Now, Washington at this point thinks 
thinks it's pretty much over, but he decides to risk one more counterattack. On Christmas night, 1776, he will lead a group of about 2,400 troops back across the Delaware, and they launch a surprise attack on the Hessian forces headquarters at Trenton, New Jersey, and he defeats them. The watchword for the attack was victory or death. They'll begin moving at dusk on Christmas night, and by 3 a.m., 2,400 troops had crossed the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of things done wrong, units got lost, a lot of people missed the timetables they were supposed to be on. But the date of execution was actually the key part of it. The Hessian soldiers stationed at Trenton had been celebrating Christmas by drinking a lot. Washington remembered the guerrilla tactics that had been used by the native tribes during the French and Indian War, and they will sneak up on the passed out Hessians in the early morning hours. It was a genius move. Only 500 Hessians out of a total of 1,500 escaped death or capture, while only two of Washington's men were killed and four wounded, one of those being Lieutenant James Monroe the future president, though that's a different tour. Now, Washington slipping across the Delaware, surprising the enemy, getting a small victory, that's not a big thing in terms of military strategy, but it was a very big thing in terms of the survival of the revolution. They had just endured loss after loss. The army's morale was low, the people's morale was low, so Trenton is a psychological victory for America and for the troops and really for Washington himself because it was sort of a last-ditch effort. They're going to to get a little bit of a boost because of Trenton, so they'll be able to inflict further heavy losses on the British at Princeton. They're able to push the British all the way back to the New York City area. They don't take New York City back because the, the British will actually keep that the entire war, but they push them all the way back after having been pushed all the way to Trenton. Washington realizes, though, at this point that he's going to have to pursue a defensive or evasive strategy and avoid direct confrontation with the British. He checks the advances. He hurts them whenever possible, but he's basically going to have to wear the enemy down because he just doesn't have the troops to meet them face to face in a regular battle. So these were very small victories. Like I said, they don't really do anything much strategically for the Patriots, but they salvaged American morale and that was desperately needed. But Washington and his troops retired to Morristown. They'll encounter a very brutal winter, inadequate food, widespread disease. Smallpox will wreak havoc among the American armies. On any given day, a quarter of the troops were deemed unfit for duty, usually because of smallpox. The threat of smallpox to the war effort was so great that in early 1777, Washington will order a mass inoculation, which he manages to keep secret from the British because if they knew that all of the American troops had been infected with an illness, they would have probably chosen that time to attack. Inoculating an entire army was an enormous risk, a very big under undertaking, but it pays off and the successful inoculation of the American army will mark one of his greatest strategic accomplishments of the war. Now, only about a thousand Continental soldiers and a few militiamen will stick out the brutal winter, but with the spring, new recruits would arrive to claim the $20 and 100 acres of land that were being offered by the Continental Congress to those who would enlist for three-year terms. Washington's army will swell to about 9,000, and he begins to plan strategies for 1777. Because of the fighting with the American forces, General Howe was unable to move up the Hudson as he had originally planned. So in 1777, he comes up with a new thing to do. Originally, they're going to send General John Burgoyne down from Canada to meet him. Unfortunately, Howe decided to change his mind and move his forces from New York and try to take Philadelphia. Now, Burgoyne is moving down with his 8,000 troops, and it started off pretty well for him. He's able to take Fort Ticonderoga.
Geneva on July 6th. But then Burgoyne will get bogged down. Patriot militias were able to defeat his armies several times in September, and he ends up being forced to retreat to Saratoga, where he'll be surrounded by a much larger force of American soldiers. On October 19th, he'll be forced to surrender his nearly 6,000 men at that point. It's not really surprising that Bourgeois got bogged down. His men were carrying heavy artillery, provisions that were needed to supply 8,000 troops, and carrying all of that stuff tended to make your army go a lot slower. And they were moving on trails, not roads. Bourgeois' personal belongings alone made up a huge amount of what they were carrying. They filled 30 carts that included things like a living and dining room suite fit for the Toast of London, heavy beds and tables, linens, fine China, crystal, silverware, wine, brandy. I mean, they're taking all this stuff that they don't really need. Small groups of patriots will go ahead of them and cut down large trees and push them across the road, which will stop the British. And they either had to stop and chop the tree up so they could keep going or go all the way around to the road. So they were really moving slowly. During one three-week period, Bourgeois' army moved less than one mile a day. So that's how slow they were going. But they get to Saratoga, and the Battle of Saratoga is going to be the most important event of that year, perhaps possibly the war, because with it, the British will lose any hope of ever taking New England, except for Newport, Rhode Island, which they managed to hold on to by basically tying down an army and a fleet there. But the British will never again secure a foothold north of New York City. Saratoga is the biggest British defeat until Yorktown. And it's also very important because it forces the European nations to see that the American actually did have a chance to win their revolution. So that means that the French and the Spanish will decide that they're probably going to get more involved. Against General Howe, the Americans were less successful and the British were able to occupy Philadelphia on October 4th. At this point, the Continentals will head to Valley Forge for their winter quarters. They were defeated, but not totally because they'll hear of the American victory at Saratoga. While the British held Philadelphia, the most important city in North America at the time, it was of little actual strategic value. And their overall campaign to suppress the revolution is a failure already. They're two years into the war. Now at Valley Forge for this winter, Washington will lose 2,500 men to disease, exposure, and desertion by the spring of 1778. And it's very obvious at this point that the war is just going to go on for years. In England, Whig opposition will fight against the war. William Pitt warned them before he died to, quote, beware the gathering storm if and when the French decided to support the Americans actively. When they received news of the loss at Saratoga by the British, the prime minister at the time, Lord North, will quickly send agents to France to open peace negotiations with Benjamin Franklin. But it was too late. The win at Saratoga, as well as their fears of British reconciliation with the Americans, will lead France to ally with the United States and recognize their independence. The Treaty of Alliance between France and America was to take effect if war should break out between France and Britain. So the French will pledge to help maintain the independence of the United States. Both countries agreed not to conclude any kind of truce or peace with Britain without formal consent of the other. France was kind of worried that the United States would end up wanting to get out of it and so they would be like okay never mind and just quit the war and 
and the French would be left in battle with the British on their own. And so they didn't want to do that. So they had to check with each other before they decided to end any kind of war. France agrees to recognize all the northern parts of America, as well as any other conquests made in the war, while the United States, in turn, promises to recognize French acquisitions of British islands in the West Indies. They're hoping to get those back. The French ambassador will officially inform Britain of the treaty in March, and fighting between France and Britain will break out in June. <laughs> Spain will enter the war a year later, though New Spain had already been providing a lot of the provisions for American forts in the West for quite some time, kind of under the table. Still, the attempts of the Americans to establish a formal treaty with Spain are a failure. Spain hoped to regain Florida from the British, but they were still very concerned that the Americans would pose a threat to New Spain and taking more and more land that they wanted. They saw them as aggressive and industrious, and they were pretty spot on with that. So they're going to help supply America with necessities, but they don't formally ally with America and they're going to pursue the British on their own. In the spring of 1778, Lord North will send a peace delegation to America with promises to repeal all the parliamentary legislation that had provoked the crisis in the first place. He pledged never again to impose revenue taxes on the colonies. If they had sent this peace delegation a few years earlier, that gesture might have kept things running a little more smoothly. But the Continental Congress now declares that any person coming to terms with the British peace agreement would be considered a traitor. At this point, with the winds of that they've been getting, they would now only discuss the removal of British troops and the recognition of American independence. So the Americans were not having any kind of truce. Taking a look at the South, in December of 1778, British General Clinton will send a force from New York against the weakest of the colonies, which was Georgia. And the British are able to crush the Patriot militia at Savannah, and they begin organizing loyalists into a fighting force to reclaim the colony. Loyalists, if you recall, and we're going to talk about them in actually in the next next episode a little bit more. But loyalists were people who were Americans who were still loyal to the crown, so they did not support the patriot cause. So basically what the British did was take over an area and then get loyalists that lived in that area to take control of the area so that it couldn't be reclaimed by the patriots because they were having trouble with taking an area and then if they had to go take care of something else, the patriots would take it back. And so it was going back and forth. So this actually works. Um, they organized these loyalists to reclaim the colony. Several American counterattacks against the Loyalists fail, and so the British will decide to try this tactic all over the South. They retook an area, turned it over to Loyalists, who would then reassert colonial authority loyal to the crown, and it worked. And in May of 1780, the Americans were handed their most significant defeat of the war with their defeat at Charleston, and they were forced to surrender over 5,000 troops. Now, in the Upper South, some states were grudgingly allowing African slaves to earn their freedom by serving the Patriot cause. But in the Lower South, the fear of slave uprisings and rebellions kept there from being a similar movement in the area. The fighting was heavy and violent in the South, and eventually will take its toll on the British general in charge, who was General Cornwallis. Now, Cornwallis had a lot of victories, but he just had too many run-ins with the Patriot forces. This idea that Washington used to just wear down the enemy really worked 
with Cornwallis. It just took a little time. So eventually Cornwallis decided to withdraw his troops to Yorktown, Virginia on Chesapeake Bay. This withdrawal will allow the Patriots to reestablish control of the Lower South. Now, once the French officially joined the fighting against Britain after the Battle of Saratoga, the future looked a lot brighter for the Patriots. Washington still didn't look like he was doing that spectacularly, though. He had three wins, he had nine losses, he had a draw. The best battle to win, though, is the very last one, and Washington is able to endure long enough to win it. This was the three-week siege at Yorktown, and that's where the war is going to end. The French and the Americans are able to surround the British encampment at Yorktown, and they begin a siege lasting until October. It was three weeks long. Continuous bombardment by heavy artillery on the part of the Patriot Army. Finally, Cornwallis will open negotiations for the surrender of his army, and on October 19, 1781, the British will surrender. Cornwallis will send his second-in-command to actually surrender. He said he was sick because he felt it would be beneath him as the British general to surrender to Washington, you know, a colonial. So he sent his second in command, General Charles O'Hara, to surrender. He didn't even want to surrender to Washington. He tried at first to surrender to the French general, but the French general waved him over to Washington. It was inconceivable for the British to imagine having to surrender to former subordinates. So everyone knew that the surrender at Yorktown was an event to be remembered, but no one quite yet realized that it was the end of the war because the British still held New York. The battle ends October 19th. It takes a little while for that information to get back to London, but at the end of November, Lord North receives the news of Cornwallis's surrender. The British hadn't been doing well. The cost of the war was huge. There was little public support for it. There was very little parliamentary support for that matter. King George III is the only one who really wants to keep going. But North submits his resignation, and in March, the king will agree to a new government headed by a Whig leader that favored granting the Americans their independence. So in July of 1782, peace talks open with Britain when Benjamin Franklin sits down with a British emissary in Paris. Now in 1779, back when they were still fighting, Congress had issued its first set of war aims. There was a little list of war goals, war aims that they had, and they were number one, recognition of American independence, obviously. Two, they wanted British troops withdrawn from U.S. territory. The plan was for negotiators to press for as much territory as possible, including Canada. So that's three. And they also wanted a guarantee of American rights to fish in North Atlantic waters. So that's our French allies were not really happy with those demands. So Congress will issue a new set of war aims in 1781, right before the end of the war, which basically called for the grant of independence and withdrawal of troops, as well as to be subject to the guidance and control of the French in negotiations. So they basically just ask for the first two things and the French would be part of the negotiations. Now, the peace commissioners in Paris were Benjamin Franklin and John Jay and John Adams, which Jefferson said was kind of a weird choice. Jefferson said, and I quote, he hates Franklin, he hates John Jay, he hates the French, and he hates the English. So John Adams was kind of a weird choice to be a peace commissioner, but he was part of it. 
it. They knew the French were attempting to manipulate the outcome of the negotiations and were trying to place limits on American power. And so they didn't want them to really be at the negotiations. So they signed a preliminary treaty with Britain and they had a secret meeting without the French. They directly violated congressional instructions and the treaty obligations that we had signed with France because remember in the treaty, we weren't supposed to sign any sort of ending to the war without checking with France. And we totally went around them. But in that treaty, Britain will acknowledge the United States as free, sovereign, and independent. We're given the Mississippi River as our border, which will more than double our territory at the time. The British will agree to withdraw their troops from all the forts within American territory as quickly as possible. Probably should have gotten something more pinned down on that, as we'll see later, but as quickly as possible. They also guaranteed the Americans the right to fish in North Atlantic waters. So the American negotiators tried to get Canada, but the British were like, um, no. So they had to settle for Western territorial boundaries extending to the Mississippi River only. Now, in return, Britain will receive promises from America to erect, and I quote, no lawful impediments to the recovery of debts. A lot of the states owed the British money. And so basically they were told, well, we won't stop you trying to get the money from them. (laughs) But they didn't promise to pay them. The British will also receive promises from America to stop confiscating loyalist property, so colonists who had been loyal to the British, and to at least try to persuade the states to fairly compensate the loyalist exiles, because a lot of loyalists had had their land taken away and they'd kind of been run out of town. And so the British said, we want you to stop doing that and to maybe try to fairly compensate these people for lost property. Finally, they both agree to unencumbered navigation of the Mississippi River. So both, both of them can use the Mississippi River without any problems. Once the treaty was drawn up and signed, France was confronted with a done deal. And France got mad. They were like, wait, what? No, we were supposed to be there. You said this, you said that. And when France tried to criticize the negotiators, it was strongly hinted that any commentary would lead to a British-American alliance. And that's something that France definitely did not want. So France just very quickly went and made their own terms and agreements with the British. Spain also did not participate in negotiations with the Americans, but they did really well against the British during the Revolutionary War. So the Spanish government issued a claim of sovereignty over much of the Trans-Appalachian Territory that was granted to the United States. They're saying, no, this this, this part's ours. And so there's going to already be an issue with Spain over territory that we think we have and they think they have. Spain will win the return of Florida. And the final Treaty of Paris is signed at Versailles on September 3rd, 1783. And it's actually not so much one treaty as it was several different treaties among the three countries because we all signed separate peace treaties with Britain. Roughly 25,324 American men died in the war. About 6,800 of those were from wounds suffered in battle. About 8,000 of those were from disease and the rest were prisoners of war or missing in action. The Continental Army regiments actually had the heaviest casualty rates, sometimes approaching 40%. The casualty rate overall was higher than any other American conflict except for the Civil War. Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week when our tour will focus on setting up the newly free colonies and making them into their very own country. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the tour, invite a friend along. See you next week.